0: We all want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for subscription stories, True Tales from the Trenches. You don't have to be Netflix, Amazon Prime, or LinkedIn to build a successful subscription model. In fact, many subscriptions make their forever promise to a small audience with highly focused ongoing needs. Mindful Communications, the organization behind mindful.org, is dedicated to a very specific goal sharing the gifts of mindfulness through content, training, courses, and directories, and helping people enjoy better health, foster more caring relationships, and cultivate a more compassionate society. Because of this core focus, Mindful has been able to develop deep expertise about how people want to engage in mindfulness. Expertise which has provided a launching pad for a range of additional offerings, including a very successful corporate training business which has become a larger source of revenue than the subscription itself. In other words, their niche focus has allowed them to be more impactful while generating multiple revenue streams to support their mission. In this conversation with mindful.com CEO, Brian Welch, we'll discuss how you can build multiple revenue streams around a strong vertical with a small number of passionate members. This conversation was recorded as part of the D2C Direct to Consumer Summit that I co produced with FIP, the Global Media Association. So you'll hear a couple of references to the conference. Welcome, Brian. We're so glad to have you at the conference.
1: Thanks, Ravi. It's great to be here.
0: Can you briefly explain mindful.org's mission?
1: Well, we're here to share the benefits of mindfulness practices, which is primarily meditation. And we share the practices through training courses, through the magazine websites. We have a global directory of teachers and events, and uh, we do a lot of corporate training.
0: And where do subscriptions fit into your bigger strategic picture?
1: Well, they're a big component. They're probably the the second largest single source of revenues for us and those subscriptions include subscriptions traditional subscriptions to the magazine both print and digital but we also have premium subscriptions that include courses and access to other uh proprietary content and even coaching
0: okay so pretty broad range and i i want to follow up on something you said you have printed content which is something that many in the audience are going to be interested in what is the role specifically of the magazine to the organization in terms of its bigger objective in the in your in your business model
1: well the magazine provides value to the business a bunch of different ways first of all i should say that the magazine is self-supporting so the print magazine we make enough on subscriptions and advertising to pay all of the expenses associated with our content creation with all aspects of the media business and so the print business is in essence a profitable business Um, but the assets it provides to the rest of the enterprise are really significant I mean I think the most important of them is we're studying the engagement of the audience all day long every day and that's through both print and digital but we're studying how people engage with these subjects so we become a world authority, then, on the right language to use, which topics are most important, how to present everything about content in our particular vertical. So I think that knowledge of the metrics, of the engagement metrics, is sort of central to all of our ent- enterprises. Beyond that, the print magazine in particular gives the field of mindfulness a kind of legitimacy that that everybody seems to recognize. And so the top teachers in the world, the top writers in the world on the subject are eager to be associated with the magazine. And it gives us a retail presence at checkout in places like Whole Foods, where we get a level of recognition that isn't possible, you know, just jostling for a position on the internet or whatever. So at the end of the day, we think we have a much more powerful brand because of the existence of the print product. And that network of people who want to support us in advancing that brand are super valuable to us in all kinds of ways. As contributors, uh, they join us for our events. They join us for custom events that we create for corporate training customers. And it maintains a network, a global network of mindfulness experts and in fact, celebrities in the mindfulness field to the degree we have them, who are aligned with mindful. And that's, you know, an irreplaceable asset, I think.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. It's like the the magazine gives you a reason to reach out to and a, a reason for these experts to to come and be connected with you, which in turn kind of powers the quality of the content. And because all the content is is in one place and under your brand, you have the opportunity to really study and understand how individuals respond to that content, which allows you to, in turn, create even more services and experiences to help them achieve their goals.
1: That's that's Um, exactly right. Yeah, in the corporate training business, which is more than half of our total size, our total revenues, our corporate customers or prospects very often ask us, Well, you know, how are we even sure our people will be interested? How do we know that you're going to be able to keep them interested and really engage them? Because if it's not a benefit, they don't want to pay for the training programs. And we're able to show them real-time metrics, engagement metrics, just, you know, from the past few years or the past couple of weeks, if they want, that show the kind of engagement we get with our content, both from the general public as well as our other training customers. And so it's a pretty powerful value proposition for products across the spectrum of things that we sell.
0: Yeah. It's, it's really important. I think there's a couple of things I want to pull out here that are important for the audience to understand. One of them is the value of engagement that you can prove what engages the audience. And that in turn is, is really valuable to your corporate buyers. And the other thing which I want to just pull out is that, that you said, I think you said that you're, Corporate training business is the number one biggest part of your business. Subscriptions are almost, I don't want to say that they're in service to that corporate business, but they're not as as large uh, a source of revenue, which I think is really interesting, especially for people that have uh, media businesses and are thinking about how to extend and expand the value they provide.
1: Yeah, that's uh, the subscriptions are second, but for sure... Over the last few years, we would not have had a growing business if it weren't for the ancillary revenue streams. Pretty difficult to create significant growth in subscriptions. I mean, it's a direct response marketing game, and direct response marketing is usually iterative. It usually takes time. You build data, you build knowledge, you set, you test, you create a control, then you test again. You know, it's iterative. And on the corporate training side, we could, we might secure a contract next month that would double the size of the corporate training business and so we're able to to gain we're able to bite off big chunks of new revenue in corporate training in a way that we couldn't do on the subscription side just because of the mechanics of growing a subscription base and so they serve each other in really profound ways we also wouldn't have the resources we have to support subscriptions and to market subscriptions if it weren't for the ancillary revenue streams like corporate training, I call it ancillary because it's not subscriptions, but of course it's larger than subscriptions. So perhaps I should uh, adjust <laughs> my language, right?
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, they really are mutually dependent. What brings the the corporate training business to you is your credibility as a magazine, as a content creator, and as a convener of experts. Without that, the corporate training business probably wouldn't be as big and as vibrant. But in fact, it is that that business that justifies the continued investment in the in the subscription as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. You know, you mentioned something very interesting about engagement. I think one of the pitfalls that many of us discovered as we moved into the digital media 15 or 20 years ago was that the digital advertiser was looking for reach. And so we started creating content that was designed to maximize our reach because, you know, we were theoretically going to get paid in terms of eyeballs on the web pages. Unfortunately, we discovered that once we started playing for reach, engagement started plummeting And all the other ways that we made money on the website, selling subscriptions, selling books, selling ancillary products, whatever else we did on the website was undermined by that reach play. I think most of us discovered in our categories, in most categories, you either can focus your content generation on reach or you can focus your content on engagement. And I I can't think of very many examples at all where people have succeeded in doing both. And so I think people in the media business and the audience building business end up facing a choice. You can either play for reach for the largest total number of eyeballs on free content or you can play for engagement and it requires a different strategy and a different philosophy about content.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because I've found in many newsrooms and with many media organizations, this attitude, at least about subscriptions, that you guys over in marketing, you decide how to price this and whether you want to sell to advertisers or you want to sell subscriptions, that's fine. We'll just keep creating the content that we've always created. But when you move to a subscription model, for sure you need to optimize around content that that audience is willing to pay for, meaning content that they care about. And by focusing on what they care about and what goals they're trying to achieve, in your case, mindfulness, it also opens up all of these additional potential revenue streams, these additional ways to ensure that they're going to achieve their goal. But it does require different content. The kind of article that is going to you know, attract eyeballs might be very different than the kind of content that someone is willing to pay for and come back to you again and again.
1: Absolutely, and those other revenue streams that are aimed, that are, that are derived from that audience, are gonna be fortified by the engagement numbers, not so much by the reach. You know, you can, you can make changes that would allow you to get twice as many people on the website, but in all likelihood, you're thinning the blood then, you know, you find you're just finding a lot of people who are less interested and the very interested people are not as interested in that shallower form of content. And so you can lose the existing revenue streams reaching, trying to reach a much larger audience sometimes, I think.
0: Yeah. You almost uh, grow faster by, by aiming more narrowly. I, I wanted to talk to you about that by, you know, by targeting a specific vertical, in this case, mindfulness it gives you a real advantage over more general plays that are maybe even touching on the same on the same content. Can you talk a little bit about what you know? I mean, you, you alluded to this in the in the early part of our conversation, but what you know about your audience that, you know, somebody might not realize if they were just kind of including mindfulness of one of four, five, six, seven different areas of focus?
1: Well, it's all we study, you know. I mean, in terms of, as we study our own metrics, we're always looking for a more compelling way of talking about the very few topics we discuss. You know, it's a fairly narrow range of topics, and so we have the luxury of studying how to present them in great detail. And I just, I don't think it's it's possible to do that across a broad spectrum of topics. And I think, in fact, because of the mechanics of the internet, that the highest knowledge of engagement is going to win. And so the question is, can your team really understand the, the best vernacular, the most effective presentation, the most effective content across a broad spectrum of topics? And I think that's generally difficult to do. So I think if you're in a subscription-driven business and you're really living on uh, engagement, that there's a built-in advantage to narrowing your focus and specializing. So, I mean, I ran, I previously for 20 years ran a multi-title publisher. We had a bunch of titles ranging from Mother Earth News about sustainability to motorcycle classics, which was about old motorcycles, right? But we quite consciously kept each of those verticals in its silo with a team of people who studied all day long the dynamics of that audience, whichever one it was. Because we knew that if we tried to spread that category knowledge across a larger, let's say, optimization staff, that we would lose the minute understanding of engagement from one vertical to the next.
0: You've been around for a while. When when you think about as you grow, right, there's ancillary topics, right? Mindfulness is just right next to yoga, for example. Being involved in corporate training, it might be around any number of other workplace stress-related subjects. Do you have a North Star either in terms of kind of your, the borders for the content that you're willing to focus on, or an ideal reader whose journey you're, you're supporting? that helps you kind of avoid branching out too broadly as new opportunities and and requests make themselves known?
1: Well, we do have boundaries around what we discuss. And if it's not, basically, if the practice is not based in meditation, then we don't consider it part of our product. We don't consider it part of our subject. And we think that helps us Deepen our knowledge and focus and succeed in that vertical by focusing. But the question of what's the ideal audience, you know, what's the ideal person? We tend to focus more on what are the nerve endings that we're touching that are most compelling to people. In the past, I think we've found that by trying to focus on a particular demographic or psychographic, we have sometimes missed a really compelling audience that none of us thought of. I'll talk about Mother Earth News for a second. At Mother Earth News, for a variety of reasons, mostly of them, most of them metric, we started depoliticizing the language we used. It was a magazine about sustainability, about living in a way that was more eco friendly. But we were finding better traffic numbers when we depoliticized the language. We would use sustainable instead of green, for instance. We basically stopped running pictures of people because we found they were very polarizing. Either the audience would identify with that person or they wouldn't, but it split the audience. So we would go you know, pictures of barns, pictures of bread, pictures of vegetables, very few pictures of people, which for a lot of us was <laughs> um, you know like a heresy, right? I mean, we'd, we'd learned our whole careers, people, 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 but we found it it stopped being productive for us as we depoliticized and changed our language we were experiencing enormous growth and we didn't really know where it was com- coming from until maybe we were a year into this process perhaps a year and a half and then we discovered that we did as we somebody else did a survey it was an outside survey by an independent organization that found that about 30 percent of our audience described themselves as very liberal politically And about 30% of our audience described them as very conservative politically. And then there were three or four bands between those two poles that were just sort of spread out with a smattering of people. In other words, we've managed to appeal to people who were at opposite ends of the political spectrum because they were people who were deeply conscientious. That's what put them at the ends of the political spectrum. And we discovered a huge audience of very conservative people who were deeply concerned about the environment. And none of our editors were conservatives. You know, most of us were not. We didn't really have natural empathy for that audience. But the metrics drove us to depoliticize our language in a way that allowed us to discover this huge and very fruitful audience. And so that's one of the reasons why I sometimes caution people against trying to picture doing too much to try to create a persona around the audience. If you know what you're about, and if you study how what causes people to passionately engage with you, then you can follow that path. And you don't need to theorize about who that person's going to be.
0: What was the data that told you that you needed to remove the pictures? Was it that you were seeing that you were getting lower engagement or negative feedback? Because it it sounds like you made the decision to remove the pictures and then you saw the uptick in audience and then saw that that audience uptick came from a more conservative group. Yeah. So it was both both both
1: engagement in the digital realm where we could measure engagement. And then we surveyed covers before we put them on the newsstand, but we also then could compare uh, the performance on the newsstand between different covers. And there was... The covers is where it was really, the difference really showed up in a dramatic way. The covers with people on them were dramatically less popular than the covers with bread on them or vegetables or barns. One weird tidbit, I mean, this is the kind of thing you learn surveying and gathering data. For some reason on the cover of Mother Earth News, vegetables were huge winners, but (laughs) berries did not perform well. Now I cannot I still until today cannot tell you why that was but it's quite valuable to understand it because we probably made hundreds of thousands of dollars over the year in additional newsstand revenue because we knew berries didn't perform well
0: That's fascinating and of course now my my brain is spinning trying to figure out why would a cover picture of vegetables do better than a than a beautiful picture of berries
1: yeah, I'm just not sure. Berries may be slightly more controversial than vegetables. <laughs> yes,
0: polarizing as it were. Polarizing, polarizing. So really interesting that the value of looking at what people engage with and what they like and what they're passionate about and kind of following that thread in terms of how you, you know, when when I think about subscriptions, one of the things that that I believe is that by focusing on you know a group of people that share a passion for something or that are trying to achieve a goal or solve a problem, there's tremendous opportunity to layer in more sources of value. And, and you've definitely done that different ways of delivering the same value through your your training, through your, your shop, through these other types of value packaging. How did you think about what what additional ancillary services to offer or you know as a media organization were you a media organization first, and then you layered in these other things, or did you have the vision right from the start?
1: We were a media organization first and layered in the others. But I mean, I'd had the experience of doing that previously in my career across, I don't know, a dozen or so different media brands. And so I was familiar with the path. And corporate training is a big project. And we we got into the corporate training business through a merger. So that's kind of, that's different than the others. In most of the other product categories, it costs very little to try it. You know, we thought there might be a need out there, we figured out a relatively inexpensive way to try, and then we put the marketing out there and measured response. And because we have access, that's another benefit of having a media audience that we effectively own. We can test product ideas within our own realm within our own audience for no cost no additional cost and discover what paths for business development are most promising so usually ready fire aim we have an idea we put it out there and then we then if it's reasonably successful we start adjusting and tuning
0: it's interesting you know looking kind of out at the landscape this conference is really about direct to consumer and Obviously, many publications are direct-to-consumer, but increasingly, we're seeing consumer products be direct-to-consumer as well, packaged goods, physical products, and we're also seeing them realize the power of, of a media presence, the power of the content in driving the commerce. And then a third leg might even be the power of community, of bringing together people that are trying to achieve the same goal or solve the same problem as a kind of third leg of this stool, leading to like a, a virtuous cycle. Have you seen organizations kind of coming at the same space, but from the the product, you know, either from a product space, like we have a, a tool or we have cushions or, you know, things like that, where they're kind of moving into the space or coming from, we have a community of people that are interested in this. Now we're going to create some content to support it. Are you seeing kind of the the merging or the conflation of these different spaces to achieve the goal of building direct to consumer relationships?
1: Well, for sure. And I think it's an often overlooked source of competition or, or turbulence for media businesses now, because every business is a media business. And so, right, we have a media business, one of the few media businesses built exclusively around meditation and mindfulness, right? But everybody out there with a book or a meditation cushion or a seminar or whatever the product might be, they're all media businesses, they're all on the internet, they're all building content designed to attract the same audience. And so as a media business, we need to, have a, we need to make sure that we are at the cutting edge of technique for attracting and retaining those audiences. Because there's a lot of people aiming for the same folks with that particular passion or need at the, at, a, at the given time. You know, I often think of the outdoors, outdoor adventure sector. And, you know, Patagonia is one of the greatest media businesses ever built. It's just they don't sell subscriptions. They don't sell advertising. They sell clothing, but they sell it all around narrative storytelling. And they're very good at it. And, and I think, you know, if you just talk in term of, terms of audience, they're a huge player in, in the outdoor adventure content sector.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to watch how I love what you said that, you know, pretty much every business is a media business right now. Everybody's thinking of valuable content, but in many cases, that content is supporting the purchase of something else as opposed to, and this is kind of goes to this point of content worth paying for. Right. If so many organizations are investing in content that they're then giving away, maybe as a loss leader to attract attention or um, tell a particular story related to their product, it becomes increasingly important. I think that if you're going to sell your content, that your content needs to be differentiated and and deep enough to be worth paying for.
1: Absolutely. And I think Robbie, I think you touched on something that's going to be really important important in the future. And we're only just getting started at this, but the value of community and the value of connecting to a group of people who are passionate about what you're passionate about is something that the media business is especially suited to providing. You know, we can build, we've always been building community, but we weren't facilitating relationships in the way we can today. And part of my thinking about the future of the business is that we'll all want to be in the community building business and in the we'll want to be creating communities that are communi- that have their own communication network within them so that really we're a source of friendship and and companionship and you know built around mutual interest we can do that better than the product companies can because there's nobody in the room trying to sell you something right i mean except content which is relevant to the relationship and i think that gives media businesses an interesting opportunity to become community building enterprises and i think there may be a lot of value derived from that
0: yeah i think you're you're right on especially for media organizations that are really focused around a clear passion that haven't come out of this generalist approach the more focused you are whether that's you know you're hyper local or whether it's a group of people that are gathered around a, a hobby or a passion or a business those people are going to get just as much if not more value from the relationships with other like-minded people um, as they're going to get from any particular product or even from an article. So figuring out how to layer in that community as a key benefit, I think is, it's not necessarily right for every organization, but it's worth exploring for every organization.
1: Yeah. You know, and I can think of a lot of examples. I mean, for instance, Free Skier was originally a magazine about a particular approach to being a skier. But for a long time, and I think this is probably still true, by far their largest source of audience was videos that were contributed by their readers. And they just served to sort of host this giant library of people who had videotaped their own ski adventures. Uh, The same was true. There was a a really cool digital media business called, is a really cool digital media business called ADV Writer. And it's for people who ride a particular kind of motorcycle, a dual sport motorcycle designed to go on back roads and trails and to, to ex- kind of explore remote areas. And again, the vast majority of their content was videos produced and provided, but for free by their audience so that they can, could enjoy them together with their community. And, uh, you know, the, source of great success and a lovely, I think, business model for a lot for people in a lot of categories.
0: One great example also, just a little pitch, is Strava, which is now the world's largest community of athletes. We have one of the other guest speakers at the conference is David Lorsch, who's the chief revenue officer at Strava, which is purely it's a community of athletes. It's an opportunity to track your own segments, your your own experiences, but also and more importantly to compare them with other people and to share goals and, and encourage your friends with their athletic pursuits. And so it's, it's really interesting to look at it from the community perspective oh, yeah. versus the content or even the product or commerce perspective. I, I wanted to change gears a little bit and circle back to something. Now, you have, you have this media piece. You have this corporate training. You have a shop. Different skills are required to be excellent in those different areas what has it been like from an operational perspective, having the right people in the different parts of the organization and kind of balancing the different metrics in what is kind of a delicate and interdependent ecosystem, the different parts of your, of your business.
1: That's a really interesting question. It's a great question. One has to say it's impossible to know if you've optimized staffing, you never know. I mean, these, and each time someone new is hired, there's the possibility that they're going to dramatically change your performance, that they're gonna change how you do business because they bring special talents, a special perspective. But I think we actually find it more interesting and difficult to hire people who understand the subject matter. You know, I can find people who have marketing experience in analogous categories. I can find people with sales experience, I can find people with IT skills. But in order to do any of our jobs very well, it's kind of important that the people we hire understand the value of meditation practice. And that becomes the the more challenging aspect of hiring for us, is finding people who, who both have the skills we need for the business, but also understand the product that we're selling you know not everybody does it's kind of esoteric and i we find that very challenging
0: yeah that's interesting uh, the other part of that that i would imagine or that i've seen you know i'm in silicon valley where finding subscription experts and product managers is really hard they're in great demand well i imagine it's very hard to find somebody who has those skills and also is a mindfulness practitioner or has some expertise in that space i could also imagine that it would be a source of attraction for the right people where they'd say, wow, I can apply my skills at an organization that does something that I actually care about.
1: Yeah. When you find the right person, it's magic. I mean, they're, they're thrilled. You're thrilled. You know, one of the things we've found in pursuit of that is our best source of candidates is, uh, are our own websites and the magazine itself. We advertise for employees through our own channels more successfully than any other channel.
0: So I have two things I want to do to to round this out. One of them is I want to uh, get your your lessons. And then I also have a little speed round that I wanted to close out with. So first, the the lessons. You've run two dozen, if not more, media brands. What have you learned about best practices in building a subscription-based or membership-oriented business?
1: You know, I'd say most fundamentally, respect your audience and to the best of your ability, share their passion, whatever the subject matter is. In this business, you're going to be more successful if you have genuine empathy for the passions and the interests of the people you're serving. And so I think that's a kind of fundamental best practice. And I would also mention, you probably need to choose between reach and engagement and if you're going to be, be subscription-driven, if most of your revenue is going to come direct from your audience, then you're an engagement-based business. And you're going to most likely need to choose between reach and engagement. And then it's all in the data. I avoided math class like all the way up to grad school. I tried not to learn anything about statistics. But... <laughs> It's everything we do now. You know, we have access to phenomenal amounts of data about how people connect with us and what they're interested in. But it requires that we're disciplined enough to keep track of it, to watch it carefully, to understand how the data come together and what they mean. These are all pretty specialized skills. It's really the heartbeat of any audience-driven business, I think, today.
0: So important. So many people want to say, you know I'm not a numbers person, you do your numbers thing over there, but when you when you take the time to look at the numbers, they tell such powerful stories about what's happening in the business, which is so important to the storytellers as well as to the math people.
1: Yeah, that's so very true, and very often what you learn is is anti-intuitive, you know Very mm-hmm. often you learn things that you would never. Have guessed. I think if you took a survey, you know, everybody hates interstitials on the website, but they're incredibly effective. And so obviously, not everybody hates them. If you took a poll, there's not a single person who ever subscribed to a print magazine with an insert card because everybody hates them so much. And yet, for a lot of magazines, they're the single largest source of new subscriptions (laughs) and always have been, right? right? And so there's a lot out there that you couldn't learn by just asking. You need to see the numbers and it's, it's fun. You know, it's a great detective game as well.
0: Oh, it's so fun. And it, and it's true. You know, people, I say this all the time, people don't tell the truth for all kinds of reasons. When you ask them, they, they don't want to hurt your feelings. Um, (laughs) They don't want to think of themselves in that way. Right. Nobody wants to say, I like to tell you that I read, watch a lot of movies with subtitles when I'm not reading important novels But really, you know, after a hard day of work, I'm going to kick back with Netflix and chill, and maybe I'm even going to watch, you know, binge watch Friends or something. Um, So people, you know, people have all kinds of reasons, and then they don't know, they don't remember. They say, oh, you know, like you said, they've they've never subscribed for uh, through an insert. They they might have just forgotten.
1: They must. I mean, I don't think everybody's dishonest. I think I think we filter our memories for what we wished were our preferences, but they're not always that way. The other thing. This is somewhat controversial, but I always always tell editors that everybody who writes a letter to the editor is a weirdo. You can tell (laughs) if you just look at the statistics, because if you have an audience of a million people and you get even 50,000 letters a year, those are still very unusual people who are writing you the letters. But the metrics are giving you a direct insight into the behavior of the audience. And so I, you know, I I would suggest that people downplay their reaction to over the transom letters, to any kind of unsolicited communication, because those people are motivated in an unusual way and pay attention to the actual audience metrics where you can get the actual group dynamic, the actual group behavior.
0: The representative sample is way more useful. Right. I want to wrap up with a few quick questions. First subscription you ever had?
1: Mother Earth News. <laughs>
0: Favorite subscription, present company, productions excluded? The New Yorker. And a time you felt like you were a real member of a group?
1: Hmm. You know, the Magazine Publishers of America, for a long time, it had a small magazine publishers group within it. It had lots of different names. But we were all Cirque Driven. And there were usually about twenty or twenty five of us who were active in that group. And it was the most fun, inclusive, up, uh, offbeat kind of group of of entrepreneurial media people. And it was great fun. and i i've I've had great camaraderie there, so I'd probably I'd probably count that one.
0: Perfect. Brian Welch, thank you so much for joining us. It was a real pleasure. Uh, having this conversation with you.
1: It was, Ravi, for me too. Thank you.
0: That was Mindful's Brian Welch. For more about Brian and Mindful, go to mindful.org. For more about FIP and the D2C conference we co-produced and where this conversation initially aired, go to d2c.global. And for more about subscription stories, as well as a transcript of my conversation with Brian, go to RobbieKelmanBaxter.com slash podcast. Also, if you like what you heard, please go over to Apple Podcasts or Apple iTunes and leave a review. Mention this episode if you especially enjoyed it. We read all the reviews because we want your feedback. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Subscription Stories.